Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3? Over the last couple of weeks in our study on, in Matthew on Sunday mornings here at Calvary, we have been looking at John the Baptist. Now, as we have said, John was the one that was prophesied about in the Old Testament, the one that God said he would send before the uh, Messiah's coming. John was a forerunner, a forerunner to the king. Every king had a herald that would go before him and announce his coming so that people could prepare. And John announced the coming of the king and told people to prepare by preaching a message of repentance. And we looked at that over the last few weeks. And now we come to the time when John would begin to pass the baton, if you will, to pass the torch to the one who was coming after him, the one he said is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Of course, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we read this morning in verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Jesus came from the region of the Galilee. Well, in the Galilee was the city of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was the town that Jesus grew up in. He was born in Bethlehem. But they moved to Nazareth while he was still quite young, and he grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth was a tough town. It was a, had a Roman outpost there. It was um, uh, well known for its um, brightest kind of living, I guess, and uh, not the kind of place you would uh, you know, want to go take your family on vacation. And also, it had a dubious distinction of being really a, a place where nothing good uh, typically came out of it. That's what... Uh, uh, Philip said, I believe, or Nathaniel, when Philip said, then we found the Messiah in Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel said, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, yeah, uh, Jesus came out of Nazareth. And he comes to John. Now, many of you know this, some of you may not. John and Jesus were second cousins. John's mother, Elizabeth, was first cousin with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And they no doubt had had a lot of contact when they were younger. Uh, Mary and Elizabeth were close, we know that, from the Gospels. And so during the course of their growing up together, they got to know each other. And we know that from Luke chapter 1, verse 26, that uh, John was about six months older than Jesus. And so if John began his public ministry at 30, as Jesus had done, that would mean that John was ministering for about six months before Jesus came to him to be baptized. And Jesus came from Galilee all the way down to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Now, that's about 60 miles. That's a 60-mile journey on foot. I mean, that was at least three days, probably a little longer, from Galilee to the lower Jordan River where John was baptizing. It tells us, and we're going to see this more clearly in a moment, it tells us, though, how important the baptism of John was in launching the ministry of Jesus. Now, before we go any further in the text, I want to stop this morning and talk about baptism for a while. Something that's very familiar to most of us, but something that we don't want to take for granted that we understand completely. The English word baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo. In fact, uh, it's just a transliteration from that Greek word into English. The simplest meaning of baptizo is to immerse. To immerse. It's used 74 times in the New Testament. Every time it carries that idea of immersion. The question is, and here's where we make our assumption. We see the word baptism in the New Testament and we assume it's talking about water baptism. That's not necessarily true. Many times it is, often it's not. 
you have to look at the context. Sometimes it's used with regard to suffering. You remember when um, James and John sent their mother to the Lord to ask him if her boys could sit one on his right hand, one on his left in the kingdom? And Jesus said, woman, you don't know what you're asking. Uh, and he turned to James and John and said, look, are you able to drink from the cup that I am about to drink from and be baptized into the baptism that I myself will be baptized with? And they said, we're able. They didn't even know what he was talking about. He was talking about his suffering. Are you able to take up the cross and follow in my footsteps? You realize I'm a suffering servant. Are you willing to take up that cross and be immersed in a ministry like mine? Sometimes the word is used with regard to being overwhelmed. In fact, from what I understand, it's still used that way in Greece today. If I was in Greece and I wanted to say I am overwhelmed today, I would say I'm baptizo, which means I'm immersed or drowning in my problems. This was kind of how Jesus used it in Luke 12, verse 50. When he said, I have a baptism that I must be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Jesus was immersed in his ministry, which was to go to the cross and die for our sins. And he was not looking forward to the cross. He was looking forward, the Bible says, to the glory afterwards. But it was a very, uh, obviously, a very heavy thing on his heart. And so he said, look, I'm immersed uh, in this issue, it's distressing me. I want to get done with the work the Father has given me. So sometimes it's used to being overwhelmed. Now, last week in verse 11, John the Baptist said, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, we said last week that there are three different baptisms mentioned in that verse. There is water baptism. John says, I truly baptize you in water. And there is also the baptism in or with the Holy Spirit. And the third one is the baptism of fire, which John went on to say in verse 12, would be the baptism of judgment, where someday all unbelievers would eventually be immersed into the lake of fire, which is what we call hell for all eternity. Now, for the remainder of our time this morning, I'd like to focus on water baptism, and then next week, look at the baptism with the Holy Spirit, and hopefully get into then Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in chapter 4. Because I've entitled this two-part message, uh, Jesus Prepares for Ministry. And we're going to see as we go what that preparation looked like. First of all, he was baptized in water, and verse 16 says, after he came up out of the water, behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting or remaining upon him. So in that one verse, you have those two baptisms. The first one is obvious. Jesus was baptized in water. And when the Spirit of God came upon him after he came up out of the waters, that's what we call the baptism with or in the Holy Spirit. We'll look at that one next week. But first of all, let's look at water baptism. You know, the Jews practiced a form of baptism that really preceded Christianity. Before they would go into the temple to worship, the Jewish men would, would undergo a ritual purification in a special cleansing pool or bath known as a mikvah. A mikvah. It would symbolize, of course, the cleansing away of the filth of the flesh. 
You didn't want to enter into God's presence with the filth of the flesh on you. Of course, to wash yourself literally, outwardly, washes surface dirt off. But it represented a cleansing of the inside. You know, preparing your heart to come into the presence of the Lord, okay? They came in with a holy heart, a pure life. That was the idea. That's what the ritual was intended to represent. In New Testament times, if a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, become a proselyte to Judaism, well, they went through a ceremonial washing referred to as baptism. Now, what about John's baptism? Well, many commentators believe that John practiced, or excuse me, copied his practice of baptism from Jewish proselyte baptism. Or they say that he may have copied it from the ritual purifications practiced by the Essenes because they practiced ritual purification down where they lived in the Qumran community. You remember the Qumran community? That's the area by the Dead Sea. They found the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. We've been down there. There was a community of separatists that lived down there. There were Jews who wanted to separate themselves from the world and all of its defilements to live a kind of monastic life in the desert there. Many believe John came from the Essene community because the lower Jordan where John was baptizing at this point was very near those Essene communities. So they say, well, John was really practicing a form of Jewish baptism. It was either the kind they practiced when they converted Gentiles to proselytes or when they went through a, um, a kind of a ceremonial cleansing. Look, John's baptism may have been similar to those in some ways, but those two baptisms really don't compare to what John was doing. That comparison really isn't valid. It fails to recognize the uniqueness of John's baptism. First of all, Essene baptisms were really not baptisms. They were ritual purifications. And they didn't just happen one time and that was it. John's baptism was once for all. With ritual purification, you had to keep purifying yourself in these mikvahs every time you went into worship. And proselyte baptism signified the admission of Gentiles into the Jewish worship community, but they were never practiced on the Jews because the Jews were already a member of the Jewish worship community. And when the Gentiles came to John to be baptized, he didn't turn them away, but he, his ministry was primarily to the Jewish people. That's why I say to you that the baptism of John is not Christian baptism, but it was a baptism connected with Israel to prepare them for the coming of their Messiah. Now, certainly Gentiles did come to, Israel, to John to be baptized because they heard about the Jewish Messiah. They had come to believe in him and the God of Israel. And so they went down, and there was Roman soldiers that came down to him to be baptized, many Gentiles who had put their faith in the God of Israel and were waiting for the Jewish Messiah. In Christian baptism, we first receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and then we undergo the ritual of baptism, signifying that we're identifying with the Lord in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what we do when we immerse somebody in water baptism. If you've been to one of our baptisms, and we're not unique, many, many evangelical churches do it this way, but we take people and we dip them backwards, signifying the death and burial of the old life, and when they come up out of the water, it signifies a brand new life, the resurrection life. And we like to do it publicly because we encourage people to invite their friends and their family members because it's a public declaration that I'm not the same person I once was. I have not committed my life to Jesus Christ. He is my new master, and I am his slave. And now I live to please him and no longer myself. So first and foremost, Christian baptism follows our 
receiving Christ, whereas John's baptism came before their receiving of the Messiah. What is the purpose of water baptism in the Christian church? Well, here at Calvary, we don't believe that water baptism is efficacious. In other words, we don't believe it affects something spiritually. We don't believe it washes away sins. And we do not believe it's a prerequisite for salvation. There's a lot of churches that teach that if you're going to be saved, you have to believe in Christ and be baptized in water. They make it part of salvation, part of the gospel. We just finished the book of Galatians on Wednesday nights, and Paul makes a big point to tell us that, look, we are saved by grace through faith alone, period. We are not saved because there were people coming into the, into the churches of Galatia who were teaching false doctrine, saying, look, you know, you're saved by putting your faith in Christ, but before you can do that, you've got to get circumcised, you guys, and become Jews and keep the law of Moses, then you can believe in Christ and be saved. Paul says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's not faith plus water baptism, circumcision, confirmation, or any other ritual that's going to equal salvation. It's faith plus nothing equals salvation is the idea. So we don't believe at Calvary that water baptism regenerates us. We don't believe it washes our sins away. We don't believe it's necessary for salvation. I'll give you some examples of what I'm talking about. First of all, you remember the thief on the cross, right? Two thieves in the, that were crucified with Jesus. One of them at one point had a change of heart and uh, acknowledged he was a sinner and turned to the Lord and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, this day will be with me in paradise. Several hours later, he died on the cross, the thief. Nobody had time to rush him down to the river before he died to baptize him. And Jesus still said, you're going to be with me in paradise today. Well, that was before Pentecost, they say. All right, well, let's go after Pentecost. Then. How about Acts 16, when Paul and Silas were in Philippi. And after preaching the gospel, they were beaten up pretty bad and thrown in prison, dungeon. And around midnight, they were singing songs to the Lord, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, and all the doors swung open of the, of the cells. The jailer, who was sleeping nearby, awoke, saw the doors opened, all the doors to the cells opened, drew his sword to kill himself, because Roman law says, if a prisoner was under your care and they escaped, you'd have to take their sentence. I mean, I don't know how many guys were in that jail, but he's figuring, forget it. Pulls his sword, and is ready to fall on his sword. And Paul yells out, wait, don't do yourself any harm. We're all here. So the guy calls for a lantern and comes in and falls at Paul's feet and says, men and brethren, what must I do to be saved? He was listening. All right. You know, if you know Paul, he's witnessing to all the guys around him, you know, and they're singing songs of church service. The guy, the guy, you know, couldn't help it over here. And no doubt the Lord had been working in his heart. He had heard, no, maybe he had some friends who were, had become Christians. He had, God had prepared his heart. But men and brethren, what must I do to be saved? And what did Paul say? Oh, that's a big process. I mean, you've got you know, you to go to church for about a year or two. You've got to get baptized and we're confirmed. Now let me tell you, then you got to... He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You and your household. Again, he didn't say, well, you know, believe and let's go take you down to the river and baptize you. In fact, I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to show you something. You know, I don't know if there's ever been an evangelist like Paul who had more of a heart for the lost than he did. I'm sure that some have come very close or maybe even equaled his passion for the lost. But, I mean, Paul proved it with his life how passionate he was to see people saved. Now, he writes to Corinth, okay, a church he had ministered to for about a year and a half. In Corinth, there's a lot of carnal things going on. And one of the things was they were comparing 
themselves with one another saying, hey, who baptized you? Well, Peter baptized me. You know, he's an apostle. Ah, Peter's a loser. I was baptized by Apollos. He's an intellectual. All right? Hey, you know, hey, you guys are both losers. I was baptized by Jesus. And Paul said, man, I'm glad I didn't baptize hardly any of you guys. And he mentions just a couple of families that he had baptized. And then in verse 17, he says, for Christ did not send me to what? To baptize, but to preach the gospel. If baptism was essential for salvation, folks, it would be part of the gospel. And don't you know, if Paul believed water baptism was essential for salvation, the moment he prayed with somebody to receive Jesus, and they said, in Jesus' name, amen, he would have rushed them down to the river and thrown them in. No. He knew that water baptism was not essential for salvation. What is it? It's a beautiful symbol of our salvation. I mean, after we receive Christ and his Blood washes us clean, and we belong to him now. Then we go down and get baptized, and we like to do it here at Calvary, make a big thing of it. We like to have you invite your friends and your family members because we want this to be a public declaration. We want this to be a statement to all the people that knew you way back before you got saved. We want you to be saying to them through this baptism that, look, the old me is dead and buried now. It's, it's, it's gone. And this, I want to live a new life for the Lord. I belong to Him now, right? And this is what baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes that. It's like a wedding ring. Once, when I marry people, a man and a woman, and they uh, say their vows to each other, at that point they are technically married. Then they present the rings and they exchange rings. That is a symbol of their union, all right? The rings don't make them married. Take a ring off. If you're married, you're still married. It's not essential for that beautiful right. The same is true with uh, salvation. We are saved by the blood of Christ through our faith in Jesus alone. And then we go down and dip a person into the water as a symbol that they are now a new creation in Christ and they want to live for him the rest of their lives. Yes, but what about Acts chapter 2? I mean, you know, that's, doesn't, that, doesn't that seal it? Acts chapter 2. Well, turn to Acts chapter 2. Of course, you all know this is the day of Pentecost. The church has begun. People are in town from all over the known world for the Feast of Pentecost. The Spirit of God falls upon the disciples in the upper room. They all begin to speak in tongues. And finally, Peter walks downstairs and a crowd is gathered who has heard the sound of this mighty rushing wind, which accompanied the Spirit's outpouring. And Peter begins to preach the first spirit-filled sermon of the church age. And at the end of his preaching, it says in verse 37, they were cut to the heart and said, men and brethren, what must we do? And Peter said in verse 38, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And they said, well, there you go. You have to be baptized for your sins to be remitted. It's essential. Well, the Greek could just as easily be translated Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of the remission of sins. See, we put our faith in Christ and we're saved and then we go down and we enter into the ritual. The ritual doesn't save us. It's a public declaration of our newfound faith. It's a symbol. It's because of the fact that Jesus has cleansed us from our sins that we get baptized. Not that it does anything for us on a spiritual level. So, Purpose of water baptism. 
It's simply an outward sign to symbolize an inward reality that Jesus Christ has washed us of our sins when we gave our hearts to him. Now, I'm not saying because it's not essential for salvation, it's not important. I'm not trying to minimize the importance of water baptism. Jesus himself uh, included it in his final command to his church before ascending back to his Father. And in Matthew 28, verse 19, where he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This was important, and the disciples took it seriously, because on the Feast of Pentecost, after Peter preached, 3,000 men and women were, 3,000 men, I should say, were converted, and they were, the disciples took them right down to baptize them in water. I just want you to understand, though, in Christian baptism, faith in Jesus Christ always precedes water baptism, because water baptism doesn't do anything except become an outward symbol of your faith in Christ. And so it always precedes water baptism, faith, always precedes water baptism in the new covenant. Now, again, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. See, John recognized that Jesus didn't need to be baptized by him. Why? Because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And, of course, Jesus was sinless and didn't need to repent for anything. And John acknowledged that Jesus Christ was a special individual. Now, here's the thing. They grew up together. How much contact they had, I don't know. But after the angel Gabriel told Mary that she was going to conceive by the Holy Spirit and bring forth a son, even though she was a virgin, and he would be called the Holy One of God, the Son of God, she went then to visit her cousin Mary, uh, Elizabeth and told her what the Lord had said. Well, of course, Elizabeth gave birth six months before Mary did. And the boys had contact with each other. I'm sure that John, who would become the baptizer, was told by his mother and others uh, that uh, the angel Gabriel had said that this child, this, this person, Jesus of Nazareth, was the Messiah, was the Son of God. Apparently, John had that in mind when Jesus came to him. Don't forget, John lived an exceptionally committed life to the Lord, as we have looked at in the last couple of weeks. I mean, John's life was totally consecrated and focused on the Lord. He lived a pretty amazing life for God. And yet, when Jesus came to him to be baptized, he said, Look, I need you to baptize me. And obviously, John knew that Jesus was special. But here's the thing, and this is what has baffled many people. What was the purpose of Jesus being baptized by John? I mean, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Jesus was sinless. So why did Jesus need to come to John to be baptized by him? Well, I think there are four main reasons why Jesus submitted himself to John's baptism and why it was so important for him to do so. First of all, Jesus' baptism was an affirmation of John's ministry. Secondly, Jesus' baptism was an identification with us personally. Thirdly, Jesus' baptism was a revelation of his divinity. And fourthly, Jesus' baptism was an illustration of his future work on Calvary. Now, if you didn't get those, we're going to go through them again real quick. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. They're pretty straightforward. First of all, Jesus' baptism was an affirmation of John's ministry. Look, by Jesus coming to John to be baptized, it was his stamp of authenticity on the ministry of John. This was not a kook. This was, as John the Apostle said in his chapter 1 of his gospel, a man sent from God, 
whose name was John, who came to bear witness of the light that through him all might believe. He was not that light. John wasn't the light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. Jesus Christ, who was the true light, that lights every man's way who comes into the world. By Jesus going to John, it was Jesus' way of saying, John's ministry is authentic. He's not a kook. He's not even something worse, a false prophet. If he was, Jesus would, have, would never have had anything to do with him. But by going to John to be baptized, Jesus was endorsing the ministry of John, recognizing him to be a true prophet with a true message from God. That's number one. Number two, Jesus' baptism was an identification with us personally. Guys, this is extremely important, not just for his public ministry, but also for his redemptive ministry. You know, practically speaking, if Jesus Christ was going to minister to prostitutes, tax collectors, and other sinners, they needed to know he was willing to identify himself with them. Now, you have to understand this. The religious people of Jesus' day were quite different in their attitude towards sinners. Pharisees would never have identified themselves with sinners. In fact, when the Pharisees walked down the streets of Jerusalem, you know, people in the streets, they would always have their robes pulled tightly to their bodies as they walked through the crowds, lest the breeze should catch the flap of their robe and cause it to accidentally brush up against some sinner and they'd be defiled. You're not reaching too many folks with that attitude. No wonder the sinners wanted nothing to do with the Pharisees because they knew the Pharisees and scribes and chief priests wanted nothing to do with them. But here comes Jesus. He was completely different. He not only wanted to identify with sinners, he sought them out. He had contact with them. He ate with them. And that's, that's something that we can't understand how monumental that was. Because in that culture, if you ate with somebody, you were becoming one with them. No Pharisee, scribe, Sadducee, or chief priest would ever eat with a sinner. Because they didn't want to become one with a sinner. Jesus took all kinds of heat for eating with sinners. They said in chapter 9, verse 11, or to his, Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, this really bothered them because they would never think of doing something like that. Of course, that earned Jesus the title of the friend of sinners. He said to these Pharisees, after they said this to his disciples, why does your master eat with these sinners? Jesus said to them, you know what? A doctor doesn't tend to the well, he tends to the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And again, we've talked about that, how that the Pharisees were not righteous. Jesus wasn't saying, look, you guys don't need me. You're righteous. He knew they were sinners. The problem is they didn't know they were sinners. And nobody is going to seek out a physician if they don't know they're sick, right? That's why Jesus came and he hung out with the sinners, because they knew, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, they knew they were sinners. They knew they were going to hell. And when he came with a message of love and grace, if you want to get to heaven, you put your faith in me. They flocked to him. They just, they, they went everywhere with him. And the Pharisees couldn't handle it. So there's just a practical application, but there's also something else here. Jesus needed to identify with sinners to die for sinners, to die for our sins. Look, the greatest identification of Jesus with sinners was through his incarnation. The greatest identification of Jesus with sinners was through his incarnation. Turn to Romans chapter 8. I just want to look at verse 3. Look at what Paul says here in Romans 8 verse 3. 
He said, for what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, that sounds um, kind of like double talk in a way. But what Paul is saying here is very important. A lot crammed in this verse. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. The law of God, as we have said, was a big thing. 613 commandments. But whittle it down to the Ten Commandments. So a lot of people who think they can get to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments. A lot of them think they are keeping the Ten Commandments. When we know they're not. Because nobody can. Why? Because of the weakness of the flesh. See, there's nothing wrong with God's law. God's law is holy, righteous, and good. Romans 7.12 tells us that. The problem is that I have this fallen nature called the flesh that wants to keep me from doing what God wants. It's my enemy. It fights me every day. There's a war going on inside of all of us who are Christians, right? The flesh against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. These two are always fighting with each other for dominance so that we don't always do the things we want to do. See, we might be able to keep God's laws for a few hours or a few days, but ultimately the flesh rises up because it's so selfish and it's so rooted in its own desires that you know what? Eventually it just we just give into it. And the flesh wants to do its own thing. It wants to be selfish. It wants uh, its own way. It wants to do things God has said uh, we are not to do. So there's nothing wrong with God's law. It's just that we were too weak to keep it to get to heaven. So what did God do? God sent his own son in the likeness of human flesh. In other words... He became a man. And because of sin, he was able to put sin away, condemn it. He was able to die and take it out of the way. See, that's the incarnation. How the Lord became one of us to save us. I think practically speaking, once again, though, Harry Ironside, I think, puts his finger on this. As we just mentioned it, Harry Ironside, of course, was a wonderful man of God and a pastor of Moody Church for a while. But he said, and I'm quoting him, He who was, who was to take the sinner's place came to be baptized by John, that he might thereby be identified with sinners for whom he was to lay down his life. It was very important right at the outset of Jesus' ministry that he identified himself with sinners, even though he was sinless, because he wanted everyone to know, look, I am the Savior of all mankind. I didn't come to hang out with the so-called righteous folks. There aren't any. I came to get right down with you guys who know you're sinners, who know you're lost, who every day you blow it and you know you're going to hell and you feel it's hopeless, and I want you to know there's hope, because I have come to die for your sins. So John's baptism was an, was an affirmation of John's, uh, Jesus' Jesus' baptism was an affirmation of John's ministry. Secondly, it was a, an identification with us personally. Thirdly, Jesus' baptism was a revelation of his divinity. Look at verse 16 of Matthew 3. It says, When... He had been baptized. When Jesus had been baptized, he came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It was at the baptism of John that the Father affirmed that Jesus Christ was no mere man. He was his own dear Son who came down from heaven to walk among us. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in verse 32, John the Apostle is talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist bore witness, saying, 
I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. See, it wasn't until Jesus was baptized by John and the Spirit of God came upon Jesus that John knew for sure this was the Messiah. He had heard the stories, he had grown up with Jesus and knew he was different, no doubt about that. But it wasn't until this moment, because the Father had told John when he sent him out to baptize, you're going to know the Messiah because he's going to come to you someday to be baptized, and when he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit is going to descend and remain upon him. So this was the confirmation that John needed to say, look, I saw it and I know this is the Son of God. So Jesus' baptism was a revelation of his divinity. It was also a revelation of the Trinity, too, as a side note. Because when he came up out of the water, what happened? The dove, the Spirit of God in the form of a dove came upon him, and the Father boomed from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now that's important because there are folks that deny the Trinity. In fact, there are certain groups who are modalists. What does that mean? Jesus-only people. What does that mean? <laughs> well, they believe there is no Trinity, it's just Jesus. Sometimes he operates in the mode of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes he operates in the mode of the Father. And sometimes he operates in the mode of the Son. It's really only Jesus, though. Well, this verse is a little difficult for them to explain. Because you got Jesus coming up out of the water. you got the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descending on Jesus. And you got the Father speaking from heaven. So I'm not sure what you do with this, but I don't have to worry about it because I'm not a modalist. All right, number four, Jesus' baptism was an illustration of his, future, of his future work on Calvary. Look at verse 15. But Jesus answered and said to John, see, John says, I, you know, why are you coming to me to be baptized? I need to be baptized by you. Jesus said, permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Or in other words, John baptized him. What did Jesus mean? When he said to John that it was fitting for him to take part in John's baptism at this time in order to fulfill all righteousness. Well, you'd be amazed at how many commentators wrestle with exactly what that means. I spent a good part of yesterday looking at various commentaries and commentators, how they define what Jesus meant here. And there was different opinions. I think most of them fell into this category. Uh, summed up by one author. I'll read it to you. I think it's about as good an explanation as any. He said, and I quote, What he meant was that baptism for him, for Jesus, was a ritual symbolizing the way in which he would fulfill all the righteous claims of God against man's sin. His immersion typified his baptism in the waters of God's judgment at Calvary, when God would pour out upon the Son all the sins of the world as he hung on the cross. His emergence from the water foreshadowed his resurrection. By death, burial, and resurrection, he would satisfy the demands of divine justice and provide a righteous basis by which sinners could be justified. So it looked forward to something. It looked forward to the fact that Jesus would take upon himself and be immersed, basically, in the sins of the world. It would be put on him. And he would die to take them out of the way. Remember, as John introduced him, 
to his disciples, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All right, look, I realize that we have thrown a lot of information at you this morning. I mean, it's all good stuff, stuff that we need to know, but can any of it help us in our walk with the Lord this week? Or the week after, or the week after that? Well, I think the greatest practical lesson that we can take away from this study is an understanding how much our Savior loves us. I want you to really think about that. How much our Savior loves us, that He would leave His exalted throne in heaven. Read Philippians 2 again. He did not count equality with the Father or with God something to be clung to, but emptied Himself of all of that glory, came down to the earth, took on the body of a human being to identify with us, lived a life of weakness in the sense that he hungered and thirsted and got tired. and He understood what it was like to be tempted, although he never sinned. We're going to see next week how the devil tempted him pretty fiercely in chapter 4. He did all of that and then eventually went to the cross to die in our place. Again, the greatest identification of Jesus with us is through the Incarnation. You realize that Jesus had to become one of us to die for us. Yeah, why is that? I mean, why, why couldn't God just say, well, all is forgiven. Let's just reset. You know, let's just kind of reset the whole deal and don't worry about it. You blew it. Don't worry about that. We'll, we'll do a do-over, okay? Uh, just, we'll do a do-over. Well, maybe we do do-overs. Some of you golfers, you do a lot of do-overs. I know that. <laughs> God can't do a do-over. God can't say... Well, let's forget all that. Let's just start over. Because God is a righteous God, and all sin has to be paid for. But here's the thing. It was a man that blew it. The man Adam, right? It was through one man that sin entered into the world. And it was going to take a man to redeem us. It would have to be a man who would take away the sin of the world. But it couldn't be any man because all men are born sinners. All of us, men and women. Every descendant of Adam is born into this world with original sin. We're all sinners. Sinners can't die for sinners. So a man blew it for all of us, but no man can save us. Except one. God, who became a man. The sinless, perfect God. God the Son who left his throne in heaven, was supernaturally impregnated in Mary's womb without physical contact by the Holy Spirit, eventually was born, grew up, went about doing good, preaching the kingdom of God, and then went to a cross and died in our place. You see, it had to be a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer. That's such an important concept in the whole idea of redemption that an entire book was devoted to it, the book of Ruth, how that it had to be somebody who was related to us. I mean, you know, God couldn't have made, uh, you know, I don't know, getting goofy, a Martian and, uh, you know, brought the Martian down to die. No, a man on the earth blew it and it had to be a man born of a woman to redeem us. It had to be a kinsman. The Hebrew was Goel. Jesus Christ became our kinsman redeemer. And guess what? It wasn't by a vote of two to one. 
He was willing. All right? He was willing. You know, the Father and Spirit didn't outvote Jesus and say, well, you got to go. <laughs> Two against one, you know, you, you lost. Well, the Bible says before the foundation of the world, before God even made this world, he knew who we would be. He knew we were going to blow it, and the plan of salvation and redemption was already in place. He was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. I think it's Revelation 13, 8 tells us. But here's the beautiful part. The word compassion, compassion. From what I understand, the root of that word literally means to climb into the skin of another. At the incarnation, God literally climbed into our skin. He experienced what it was like to be one of us. He experienced everything that we go through. He was a man of sorrows. He grew up in poverty. His stepfather died while he was still young, which meant he became the, the leader of the family, taking care of his, his mother and his younger brothers and sisters. Then he devoted himself for three and a half years going around helping people, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, raising the, the dead. And when it was all said and done, they put him on a cross and crucified him, which he knew full well they were going to do. And yet he said, no one, no one takes my life from me. I give it freely for the sheep. I mean, when you think of that, that's compassion. One more scripture. Turn to Hebrews 4. We'll end with this. In Hebrews 4, starting at verse 14, we read, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, speaking of Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy to find grace to help in time of need. Is the Lord sympathetic towards your struggles? Absolutely. Does the Lord look at your life and go, well, you keep blowing it. And you know what? I, just, I don't even want to be identified with you anymore. I want to hang out with you anymore. He doesn't do that. He understands what it's like to go through hardship and heartache, what, it, what it's like to be tempted and so on. And he says to us, look, I have been where you are, that you might be with me someday where I am. Until that time that I come to get you and take you to be with me, I am sympathetic towards what you're going through. I'm not against you for your sin. I'm for you against sin. Come to me. Talk to me. Bring your weaknesses. I want to help you. I'm going to give you mercy and grace in your time of need. Don't let the devil condemn you and tell you that because you still blow it, because you still fall into that sin, that I'm done dealing with you. That is untrue. Paul said, if God be for us, who can be against us? And God is for us because he didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. God is for us. Now, the devil wants to think, us to think God's against us. But I'll tell you what, the baptism of John in a small way began to give us the understanding that God has identified with us through Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what Christmas is all about, right? The incarnation. 
how he climbed into our skin to understand our pain. What a great, gracious Messiah and Savior we really have. And so next week, God willing, we will continue uh, looking at the second baptism we want to look at, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. We'll talk, talk to you about what that means and hopefully get into chapter 4 in how Satan then tempted the Lord in the wilderness. Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful truths you've placed here in your word for us to learn. Father, we pray that you would give us grace to apply these into our life this week. Most importantly, Lord, that we would remember that you are with us, that you became one of us so that you might understand what we go through, that you might not be an unsympathetic Savior, but a sympathetic Savior and High Priest. And Lord, give us grace to understand that when we stumble and fall, we don't surprise you or shock you. You know every sin we're going to commit, and you stand ready if we will repent to pick us up, dust us off, and take us by the hand that we might continue to walk with you as children. But we just thank you, Lord, that you were so willing to identify with people such as we. We just praise you, Lord. You're so awesome. We ask all this now in Jesus' name.